Well, you might remember the invasion of Iraq uh, in 2003. The war effort was controversial at the very beginning. The United Nations refused to support the war, and questions lingered about its necessity. But at the time of the invasion, speaking for myself, I remember not worrying about the questions. I remember celebrating the fall of Baghdad as American and British forces rumbled their way to the capital in pursuit of Saddam Hussein. I cheered on the shock and awe bombing raids that were meant to force Saddam into submission. For 15 years, I had grown to detest Saddam and everything he represented. Saddam had become our generation's Hitler or Stalin. Baghdad was our Berlin, our Moscow. Rumors had swirled that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction that he was willing to use and that he actually had harbored the terrorist organization that attacked us on 9-11. So when the bombing finally started, I cheered the downfall of this godless pagan enemy. Now, of course, the grounds for war turned out to be spurious and the post-war situation turned into a disaster. Speaking for myself, I regret getting caught up in the war fever. But for a moment, many of us felt safer. With the fall of Baghdad, we felt delivered. I've taken you down memory lane here because it helps us get a glimpse of what God's people might have felt so many centuries ago. You see, just 50 miles south of Baghdad sits the remains of another fallen enemy, the capital of Babylon. With its glorious hanging gardens, once ruled the Middle East. Babylon was a powerful empire that had conquered Assyria and Egypt and Judah. Babylon had destroyed Jerusalem, the city of God. Babylon had burned its temple and exiled Jerusalem's people to their own capital city back in Babylon. But eventually Babylon falls. They fall to the Persians in an impressive shock and awe military campaign. And as God's people watched this unfold, they might have felt what we felt back in 2003, relief, victory, revenge. But they might have also wondered, would it last? And what does it mean? That's actually what I want to talk about with you this morning, the fall of Babylon. Uh, We're in an extended study, as you probably know, of the Old Testament book of Isaiah, here at Rooftop. Isaiah was a prophet, a Jewish prophet who lived eight centuries before Jesus in the uh, nation of Judah. Now Judah was uh, God's people. They had been given the promised land to uh, live lives of holiness and devotion and humility. They were to be a light to the nations. For the most part, Judah wasn't that. God sent prophets to warn them to be that, and they said, no, not interested in that. So finally God uh, sends them a prophet to announce their imminent destruction. At the hands of their enemies, this prophet's name was Isaiah, and his uh, poetic prophecies are collected in the book that bears his name. Now, as we've seen, Isaiah is a book, it's very big, it's very complicated. Uh, I decided not to study it like verse by verse or chapter by chapter, because that would have been really long and really confusing. Instead, I studied an equally confusing way to study the book. We're studying it by theme. And we're looking into Isaiah, what we can learn about different themes, about the character of God or the sins of Judah. Um, And our current mini-series is called What Happened. Throughout the book, not like in the same place, but throughout the book, you actually get little glimpses of what happened in the history of Judah at this time in their history. 
Uh, and we're filling in that story a little bit, just to kind of reorient ourselves about what happened at this point in their history. Now, the general storyline of what happened to Judah at this point in their history is that Judah, the nation of Judah, resists their enemies for a very long time. They resist Assyria, but they can't resist Babylon. Babylon defeats Assyria, and then Babylon comes against Judah, and then Babylon destroys the city of Jerusalem and burns the temple. And then King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon carries off the citizens of Jerusalem to their home in Babylon, their new home in Babylon, where they stay for 70 years. It's like 70 years in time out for God's people. Now, God didn't intend to leave them there in Babylon. He intends to return them to Jerusalem, and then he intends to help them rebuild their city and rebuild their temple. But before he can do that, and we'll talk about these in, in, in future weeks, but before he can do that, he needs to destroy their captors. He needs to destroy Babylon. He needs to bring down their Baghdad, if you will. And that's what happened. The capital of Babylon falls. Importantly, the prophet Isaiah actually predicts this event over 100 years before it happens. That prediction comes in chapter 47 of his book, and that's the chapter that we get to study together this morning. Chapter 47 of Isaiah. I will tell you, it's long-ish. But it's good. And it's also scripture. So let me share with you Isaiah chapter 47. Go down, sit in the dust, virgin daughter Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, queen city of the Babylonians. No more will you be called tender or delicate. Take millstones, grind flour, take off your veil, lift up your skirt, bare your legs. Wade through the streams, your nakedness will be exposed, your shame uncovered. I will take vengeance, I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord Almighty is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence, go into darkness, queen city of the Babylonians. No more will you be called queen of kingdoms. I was angry with my people and desecrated my inheritance. I gave them into your hand, you showed them no mercy. Even on the aged, you laid a very heavy yoke. You said, I am forever the eternal queen. But you did not consider these things or reflect on what might happen. Now then listen, you lover of pleasure, lounging in your security and saying to yourself, I am and there is none beside me. I will never be a widow or suffer the loss of children both of these will overtake you in a moment, on a single day, loss of children and widowhood. They will come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and all your potent spells. You have trusted in your wickedness and have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself, I am and there is none besides me. Disaster will come upon you and you will not know how to conjure it away. A calamity will fall upon you that you cannot ward off with a ransom. A catastrophe you cannot foresee will suddenly come upon you. Now the poem actually goes on a little bit more. But the gist of it is that while God had allowed Babylon to become ascendant, their time on the top of the heap would be short-lived. Sure enough, Babylon's time in the sun is, is really just a blip 
on the calendar of human history, the Neo-Babylonian Empire, which is this one, it lasts barely 100 years. It's kind of like God raised them up for this purpose and then blew them down in the next breath. And that's what Isaiah, Isaiah foresees here. Before his people are even taken captive by Babylon, the prophet looks into the future and sees a, a, a catastrophe that will befall their future captors. And this downfall of their captors would come at the hands of God. Now, why would God be judging Babylon? Well, that's what we read here in this chapter. We see their sins. Uh, For starters, Babylon would be judged because of their cruelty. As the prophet writes, I gave my people into your hand and you showed them no mercy. Even on the aged, you laid a very heavy burden Babylon had turned into an an oppressive overlord that acted cruelly towards the nations it defeated. They would also be judged because of their complacency. The prophet writes, now then listen, you wanton creature lounging in your security and saying to yourself, I am and there is none besides me. I will never be a widow or suffer the loss of children. Very quickly at becoming the most powerful nation around, Babylon gets lazy. They lounge in their security. They do not prepare for new enemies. They become proud. Then they are defeated, and their wives become widows, and their children become orphans, even though they said that would never happen to us. Well, it did. Thirdly, Babylon would be judged for their conceit. As he says, your wisdom and knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself, I am, and there is none beside me. Now, the phrase, I am, it might actually be a reference to the name of God himself. Maybe you know the scene in the book of Exodus when God reveals himself to Moses, the deliverer of the Israelites, and in the burning bush. You might know the scene. And Moses asks God, hey, when I go back to my people and tell them I met you, what should I tell them your name is? And God says, well, you know, it's kind of hard to name me, but if you want a name, my name is Yahweh. We really don't know how to translate it. We barely even know how to pronounce it, frankly. But it probably means something like, I am who I am. I am the God who is. I just am. So Isaiah might be accusing Babylon of claiming to be God. I am and there is none beside me, they say. The rulers of Babylon were claiming to be godlike in their status and for this they would be judged. And finally, Babylon would be judged for their corruption. They were a pagan nation with pagan practices. They specialized in evil. In verse 10, we read, have you have trusted in your own wickedness? For all these reasons, cruelty, complacency, conceit, corruption, Babylon would be judged. And for the record, Babylon was. In 539 BC, the Persians, uh, led by Cyrus, toppled this great but short-lived empire. The city of Babylon was never rebuilt to its glory. Now, the former megapolis stands 50 miles south of Baghdad as a heap pile of rocks. Tourists can go see its glory. Now, I actually think we have a lot to learn, you and I, from the story of the fall of Babylon. It's not just some interesting but irrelevant ancient event. But before we talk about what it means for us, I want to ask a theological question that might twist your brains a little bit. I know a lot of you have told me you don't like when I overthink things. I'm just letting you know I'm getting ready to overthink things for several moments. Um, If if you're not interested in this and you need an Instagram break, now's your chance you can check out. I'll let you know when you can check back in. I won't judge you, or at least I'll pretend not to judge you. My, my theological question that I want to talk about for a moment is this. Why would God, how can God judge Babylon for fulfilling his will? 
How can God judge Babylon for doing exactly what he gave them to do? What I mean is, God is the one who decided to use this nation to attack his people. The Bible says that God is the one who brought Babylon to Judah. Babylon was God's instrument. The author of Chronicles writes here, God brought up against them the king of the Babylonians. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. So the destruction of Judah by Babylon was God's doing. But wait a second, now we learn that God is punishing Babylon for doing what they did, which is what he gave them to do. You see the problem? You guys see the problem? Potentially? It's like me telling uh, my son Max, you know, Max, your mother and I are getting out, getting ready to go out for a night on the town, and you're in charge of Miranda. Uh, if Miranda misbehaves, here's what I want you to do. I want you to uh, deprive her of dinner. I want you to uh, send her to her room. I want you to uh, put her in timeout. And uh, then we get home that night, and we find Miranda has been deprived of dinner, and she's in her room, she's in timeout, and we're like, Max, what did you do? Well, I'm just doing what you do. No, what did you do? Like, I'm doing exactly what did you do. It's not fair of us to punish Max for doing exactly what we gave him to do. Why is it fair of God to punish Babylon for doing exactly what he gave them to do? We were actually talking about this question at staff meeting this past Tuesday. We like to talk theology at staff meeting every now and then. And we came up with some possible answers to this question. Some of our staff think, for example, maybe it is within God's authority to choose to judge whomever he wants for whatever reason he wants, even if it doesn't seem to make sense. This might look inconsistent to us, God judging Babylon for doing what he gave them to do, but God's ways are not our ways. If God decided to use Babylon to punish Jerusalem and then decided to punish Babylon for punishing Jerusalem, who are we to say he can't? Another possibility is that maybe different authors in the book of Isaiah have different takes on different events. You see, there's actually a good chance that the book of Isaiah was not written by one single author. I'm not saying it wasn't written by one single author, but it's a chance that it wasn't. Maybe Isaiah had like disciples who wrote other prophecies later. So Isaiah might have understood God to be judging Jerusalem through Babylon, and maybe a later disciple of Isaiah understood God to be judging Babylon for their cruelty separately from earlier events. Maybe these are two ideas from two perspectives. Maybe. What I've come to, though, is this. I'm inclined to think that maybe God chose Babylon to be his agent of punishment, but they exceeded what he desired. I actually see this in verse 6, which we've already read. God says, I was angry with my people and desecrated my inheritance. I gave them into your hand, and you showed them no mercy. Even on the aged, you laid a very heavy yoke. In other words, God tells Babylon, I gave Jerusalem to you. I gave you the city. I gave you my people to punish, but not like this. I didn't give you my people to oppress and burden so that old men have to carry rocks like slaves. I gave you my people so that you could show them judgment and mercy, punishment and hope, but you didn't. Sure enough, if you actually read other books in the Old Testament that describe life in the exile... You learn what life was like for Jews living in Babylon, like books of Esther and Daniel. The Jews living in Babylon endured constant threats of persecution, extermination. They were thrown in fiery furnaces. So Babylon is being judged, not because they obeyed God, but because they didn't. 
Make that of what you will. But I actually think it's important to defend the consistency of God's character here. But that question asked, let's tackle the more important question, though, the so what question. This is the question we try to ask and answer here at Rooftop. What does the Bible mean for us, practically? What do you and I have to learn from this incident? It seems like some remote historical incident from centuries ago that has no bearing on our lives. Does it have anything to teach us? What do you think I think? In fact, it does. I think this has a lot to teach us. I can think of two important lessons we have to learn here from the destruction of Babylon. First, uh, we learn that God will judge all the nations for all their sins. God will judge all the nations for all their sins. You see, the primary storyline in the Bible is of God choosing one nation, the nation of Israel, which became the nation of Judah, to be his special chosen people. And the Bible, the Old Testament, tells the story of God's crazy relationship with Israel. Israel had good years and bad years, but mostly bad years, and God was constantly threatening to punish Israel, and he does, and he says he will again. God will again arrive to judge his people. Jesus himself even says that he will arrive to judge his people. And he will separate the sheep from the goats. But God won't just judge his people. God will judge all people. God will judge all nations. Israel is God's special chosen nation, but Babylon is his nation too. All nations are his. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 110, the Lord will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. Who does all nations include? The nations includes Babylon. The nations includes Assyria. The nations includes Egypt. The nations includes England. The nations includes Iraq. And the nations includes America. We are Americans. That's our nation. Hopefully we are proud Americans. If America isn't the greatest country in the world, in the history of the world, it's close to it. I'd make that case against any Canadian any day. We are the land of the free, the home of the brave. Our constitution is one of the greatest written documents in the history of written documents. But just because America is amazing doesn't mean we'll get amnesty for our amoral and ambivalent ways. In fact, when I read Isaiah 47, I get nervous. I get nervous for our nation that we love. I mean, what was Babylon judged for? Babylon was judged for its cruelty, complacency, conceit, corruption. Are we cruel? We can be. As a nation, we've enslaved entire people groups and put innocent people in cages. Are we complacent? We can be. We're a nation of people who sit back lazily and let the government take care of us. Are we conceited? We can be. We think we can win wars, wars by ourselves because we're America. Are we corrupt? Can be. We have legalized infanticide and sexual immorality and have institutionalized greed. Judah was judged. Babylon was judged. America will be judged too. Are we willing to say that? Are we so in love with America that we won't call it out for its hypocrisy and immorality? And when America is judged, will we be judged with it? Are we more American than Christian? 
That's a question I think every American, question, American Christian should be asking themselves right now. Are we more American than Christian? A lot of us are. If our pastor says something slightly political that we don't agree with, we'll go find another church because we're more committed to our politics than we are to our churches. Are we more American than Christian? Have we let the cruelty, the complacency, the conceit, and the corruption of America influence us? If we have, I'm here to tell you, we'll be judged for it. That's the first thing we have to learn. God will judge all the nations for all their sins, including ours. The second thing we have to learn here is this. God opposes those who oppose his people. God opposes those who oppose his people. Like I said, Babylon was ordained to be the instrument of God's punishment. Judah needed to be punished. They had ignored God for too long. They needed to be disciplined. But God was still committed to them. He loves his wayward children. Just because your kid goes off the rails doesn't mean you give up on him, right? God didn't give up on Judah. His discipline of them was actually a sign of his love. And and when Babylon uh, overextends and goes overboard with the punishment, he steps in. He says to Babylon, that's not what I meant. I didn't appoint you to oppress my people and threaten my people with genocide and make them worship false gods. Not that. I appointed you to show them my judgment and my mercy. You didn't, so now you, Babylon, will see my judgment. God opposes those who oppose his people. In this sense, God is actually just being consistent with what he has said he will do. Way back in the book of Genesis... God calls one man to be the founder of a new nation. What was that guy's name? Abraham. God called Abraham to be the founder of a new nation that would become Israel. And what did God tell Abraham? God told Abraham this. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. And what? Those who curse you, I will curse If Babylon had been a blessing to Judah, Babylon would have been blessed. But Babylon was a curse to Judah, so Babylon was cursed. God opposes those who oppose his people. I think this is an important point, even for us to understand. You see, later in the Bible, the name of Babylon is used in reference to another nation that oppresses God's people. After the Persians defeat the Babylonians, the Greeks come along and defeat the Persians. And after the Greeks defeat the Persians, the Romans come along and defeat the Greeks. And during the Roman Empire, that's when Jesus is born. And that's when Jesus grows up and dies on a cross and rises from the dead and sends out his disciples into the world, into the Roman Empire, to preach the good news that he had told them that anybody can be forgiven of their sins, all of their sins, past, present, future sins, if they believe in Jesus who died on the cross for their sins. And they worshipped Jesus as this suffering savior. And they also worshipped him as the one who had risen from the dead. The one Lord, the one king, the king of kings, the lord of lords. There were enough out there that the Roman Empire got word of all these Christians. And they said, okay, Christians, that's fine. You can worship Jesus as a god, but not the god. you got to worship Caesar as the god. And Christians said, no. Not going to. We're going to worship Jesus as the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Caesar of Caesars. 
That's what the word Caesar means. Caesar actually means king. And Romans said, okay, if you want to do that, that's fine. But you're going to die. We're going to kill you. And the Romans unleashed a shock and awe military campaign of persecution against God's people. Thousands of Christians were crucified and tortured. The last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, was written to encourage Christians who were living under the threat of persecution. The author of Revelation, John, wants to reassure Christians that God was with them. If they were persecuted, if they were tortured, it would not be in vain. If they suffered in death, they would rise again, like Jesus did. And he also writes to promise them that their enemy, the Roman Empire, would suffer too. God would judge them. But here's where it gets really interesting. John does not call their enemy Rome. What does John call their enemy? He calls them Babylon. Now why? Why would he call them Babylon? It's Rome, it's not Babylon. Because John's audience would have understood the reference. And they would have understood the point. Just as God rescued his people from Babylon and defeated Babylon, God would rescue his people from Rome. Because God is opposed to those who are opposed to him. Revelation 18 even describes the scene. It's a prophecy of a future time when the wicked Rome will fall, as did Babylon. As John writes, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Fallen is Babylon the great. This was a message of hope to Christians living in Rome that they would not be oppressed forever. Their Babylon, their Baghdad would fall. And it's a message for us too. God's opposed to those who oppose his people. What does it mean? Well, it means a lot to Christians living in China facing persecution at the hands of the communist atheistic government. I've got a picture there. Picture. It means a lot to Christians living in the Middle East being beheaded by fundamentalist Muslim extremists. Even here in America, I don't believe we are nearly as persecuted as we want to think we are. Forgive me, there is no war on Christmas. But there might be, eventually. Christians are increasingly opposed on college campuses by secularists who want to deny us the ability to preach and even think what the Bible says. Christians are opposed by businesses and leaders who object to our values. God sees all that. God is patient with those who oppose us. God loves them too, and we too should love our enemies. But ultimately, God won't let it stand. God is opposed to those who oppose his people. God will destroy our enemies, and this includes our greatest enemy too. Who is our greatest enemy? Our greatest enemy is not the enemy that you think it is. It's not Saddam Hussein. It's not Joe Biden. It's not Donald Trump. It's not Vladimir Putin. Our greatest enemy, it's death. Death is the great foe. Death will bring down every one of us. But just as God brought down Babylon, just as God brought down Rome, just as God will bring down America unless we repent, God will bring down death. In fact, good news, he already has. If you hadn't heard, (laughs) the Son of God came to earth 2,000 years ago, walked 
in our shoes, hung on a cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven of all the sins we've ever committed, past, present, and future. All our cruelty, all our complacency, all our conceit, all our corruption, Jesus died for those sins. But God didn't just leave him dead. God is committed to his people. God was committed to Judah in Babylon. God was committed to his son in the grave. God raised him from the dead. And he won't give up on us in our graves of sin and death. He'll raise us from the dead too. That promise is for you this morning. If you believe, if you believe that Jesus is the son of God who came to rescue you from Babylon, you can be saved. God loves you too much to not punish you for your sins, right? God loves you too much to not punish you for your sins. Your sins need to be punished, but that's what happened on the cross. Your sins were punished on the cross. Jesus took that punishment. But God also loves you too much not to give you a way to live forever. And that's what happened in the resurrection. Jesus made a way for you and I to live forever with him. So, by that message, by that good news, get yourself saved this morning. Get yourself rescued before God arrives to judge Babylon, Iraq, America, and all of us in a shock and awe campaign of judgment that you are not going to want to see. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for these words from the prophet from so long ago. They speak to us today. This was not some interesting historical incident. We see in the fall of Babylon your devotion to your people, your justice. It redounds through the generations. I remember the song that uh, Kurt led us in earlier in the set. A song about victory. That victory is ours. The victory of Jesus on the cross, it's ours. No matter what might hap- happen to us here on earth, no matter what takes us down to the grave, cancer, car accidents, whatever, we have the promise of the resurrection. We're already living it. The power of God, which raised Jesus from the dead, is alive inside of us right now. I pray that we can claim that power, live lives, um, overcoming sin, the power to love our enemies, even the ones that oppress us. Thank you for our opportunity to see who you are this morning in your message. Pray for everybody here as we go and live our lives this week. Remind us that you are with us, that you are opposed to those who are opposed to your people, including the greatest enemy of death. And help us not be afraid to convey your judgment against sin, cruelty, against America, all the nations. This nation that you love, this nation that we love, let us not love it so much that we're not afraid to, that we're afraid to speak truth to our friends and neighbors. 
Thank you for this morning, the chance to worship you, to be with you. Pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.